But right at the end, I sat in the chair you're sitting in and Anthony Joshua was there. And he looked at me one day and he said, what do you really want out of me? I said, I want 1% of your adrenaline. Who do you think would win the fight, AJ Tyson Fury? I think at the moment, you you, you make Tyson Fury a big favourite. AJ has concussive power. I don't think I've ever seen a heavyweight since Ernie Schaefer punch as hard as AJ. Saudis are coming and said, we want boxing over here now. What sort of multiples are they paying out there in Saudi compared to what you'd be paying in in England? Mind your own business. (laughs) A lot more. A lot more. And Anthony likes to fight. I believe that he believes that he can get back to being the unified champion of the world. What were the big fights you put Eubank in with? Was it Eubank Ben? Eubank Ben in 1990. The best fight I've ever seen to this day. Why was there not a third fight with Eubank Ben? Because unfortunately... Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Great to have my old mate Barry Hearn on the show. When it comes to sporting businessmen, you don't get much bigger than him. The legendary sports promoter and chairman of Matchroom Sport shares his thoughts on Anthony Joshua, Tyson Fury, the financial backing from Saudi Arabia, and Matchroom's groundbreaking multi-million pound contract with DAZN. Baza shares so much wisdom in this interview, and I could speak to him for days. This is the eventful life of the one and only Mr. Barry Hearn. Baza, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks, Dodge. Always good to be with you. Yeah, mate. So I'm really looking forward to this one. It's been uh, we've been holding on for this one for a couple of months with the weather and stuff. Yeah, well. Let's yeah. roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you end up becoming the world's biggest sports promoter? I mean, I was born in Dagenham in the East End and uh, my dad was a bus driver. My mum was a cleaner, a house cleaner. So, you know, typical story, really. Poor working class, but actually very happy. You know, I mean, it wasn't... Yeah, it's a rags to riches story in commercial terms, but emotionally, they, they were good days, you know. I think we were respectful, we were disciplined. My mother was my driving force. My father died quite early. And my mother, I think, was a, an inverted working class snob. You know, she didn't, she wasn't educated herself, but she knew what she wanted for her children. So in my case, she was always on my case, you know. Um, I think when I was, I went to grammar school. Well, I think I was about the only kid on our estate that did. So she pushed me into things like, she gave me, elocu- she made me have elocution lessons when I was 11. As you can see, it didn't work. Um, then about when I was 13, she put me into the Amateur Dramatic Society. I was doing Bertolt Brecht plays and Shakespeare when I was 13. I was 14, she put me in the verse-speaking society, so I was travelling around schools, reciting T.S. Eliot, Robert Graves, and that sort of stuff. At the time, it was a complete pain, but looking back, it actually made a massive difference to me because it gave me confidence to speak in public, gave me a feeling of knowledge, and it also taught me how to fight because every kid took the piss out of me uh, in my school, so I used to have to stand up for myself, obviously. So all in all, looking back, I owe her a big debt because 
she was the one that said to me when I was 12 years old, she came back from her house, she was cleaning some rich geezer on the big houses on the top of the hill. And she said, when you grow up, you're going to be a chartered accountant. I said, am I? She said, yes. I went, well, what do they do? She said, I've no idea. She said, but the man whose house I clean said you never see a poor yeah. one. And that line stuck in my, my mind for forever. Mm. So career lessons at school, you know, I don't need to go. I'm going to be a child again. And always. I wasn't envious of people to have money. I just wanted the same. I wanted the same level playing field based on ability, not where you came from, not who you are. And in those days, it was quite difficult. I mean, we, we live in a very diverse society, but it has lots of problems. Uh, people understanding that everyone is equal, for example. And we didn't have it in those days for different reasons. It was upper class, middle class, working class, and you better know where you came yeah. from. Yeah. And, and we were clearly working class, you know. But she eventually, somehow or the other, got an uncle of mine who was in South End who had a tiny tiling business. And he convinced... She said, see what you can do for my son. And we're very family-orientated, working-class people often are. And he convinced his accountant to give me a chance as an article clerk. So I joined 1960. What sort of age were you there, Baz? Uh, well, I, I never went to university, but I got, I got a couple of A-levels, somehow or the other, which meant I could do a four-year article clerk. So I was in school 59 to 66, and I, I joined this very small firm in 66 as an article clerk, six quid a week. And, and I had to study in the evenings for the exams. In those days, it was all correspondence mm -hmm. course. And my mum literally locked me in my bedroom between age 18 and 21, Monday to Friday. I never went out. Yeah. I never went out. Yeah. You know, looking back on it again, it all gets relevant in our life. You talk about sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Well, I sacrificed a good bit of my youth to achieve my goal. I didn't play at it because I never failed any exam because I couldn't afford to. I, I couldn't afford to take the exam twice. And also because of my work ethic, I knew every bloody word. Yeah. I mean, I could recite pages from memory because, you know, I'd done the job properly. So I qualified in uh, 1970. So one of the youngest ever child accounts, I was 21. I became a fellow of the Institute, I think the youngest ever at 24. Uh, and, you know, not being funny, I was smart, you yeah. know. I wasn't academically smart. I was street smart with a bit of academia thrown in, yeah. if you like. Yeah. So I qualified in 1970, uh, yeah, qualified in 1970, went to a major firm of accountants for a few years. And that's when I first came up against a real class barrier because I was smart and I was very, and I was a, a salesman. Mm. And I think with the... You know, <laughs> the learnings of, you know, verse speaking and acting and things like that. I had the confidence to become a salesman. Yeah. And I was successful for them. And after a couple of years or three years, they, I remember the senior partner of this company brought me into his office and he said, uh, we're going to make you a, an audit manager. Lovely, more money. He said, and I want to tell you, you're the youngest audit manager and we've had in this firm for uh, 200 years. I said, well, that's good. He said, you're good. He said, and you've got a great career here. But I have to just tell you one thing. This is as far as you go. Mm. He said, you know, you didn't, be you didn't go to university. 
no family money, no connections, but you're good. Mm. So you're going to have a job with us for the rest of your life and you're going to get a great pension. And I thought, fuck that. <laughs> I'm off. I'm off skis. <laughs> and within a few months, you know, I was doing the audit of a fashion company, brilliant people. I'd never come across any, I, I, I never saw drugs or men with makeup and things yeah. like that. And yeah. suddenly I'm thrown into this. I was like a fish out of water. They all used to take the mick out of me because I used to wear a suit and tie. I was financial director. Uh, and I'd go up to the library and I'd, what's that smell? Uh, it's marijuana. I'd never smelled marijuana really? before. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? And then I'd see people, you know, blokes coming in with eyeliner and lipstick, and, but they were so creative. And they were the new breed that had come out of the mm. 60s into the 70s. And they were changing the world of fashion. And it took some time to adjust. I mean, during that period, I started boxing. I don't know why, but I felt challenged in yeah, some yeah, way. And yeah. it was an expression and it, and it solved a lot of problems. Was, but was sport part of your life growing up? No. I mean, sport was part, for, as far as a, a, a player, yeah. yeah. I mean, I wasn't particularly good. I, like with me, every, my whole life, I'm a gold medal winner in enthusiasm, but I'm not even bronze in ability. So I try everything and I give 110%. God decided that I was not destined. I mean, growing up, I wanted to be heavyweight champion of the world because I'd go to Saturday morning pictures and I'd see Pathé News and it'd have Rocky Marciano on or later on Muhammad Ali. And they were my heroes. Mm. So that was my dream. But then, of course, I come in every so I found out I wasn't very good at fighting. <laughs> so it was a bit of a career setback, but other doors opened. Mm. I was brought up in a generation that always looked forward to retirement. Yeah. My granddad was a Texaco lorry driver all his life. All he ever talked about was getting to 65. And of course, when they do and they stop, he was dead at 67. So I was in that situation in 82. I thought, you know what, I'm I'm a free man. It's just a wonderful feeling to be independent. And when you're on your own or you're a creative entrepreneur, that's a feeling that other people don't get. We do. And it comes with a price. But I thought I'd retire. I thought I'd play cricket, I'd play golf, and I'd go fishing. Well, I did it for six weeks every day and I was climbing up the wall and I realised that what I missed was the cut and thrust, yeah. the deals, the ups and downs. So I thought, that's not where I'm going silly. I don't want to get back in the rat race. But I'll form a little company. I'll call it Matchroom because it's named after the hall that Steve Davis used to play his money matches in in Romford. That was the Matchroom Club. Yeah. So I thought Matchroom is a really key word. Romford's been a big part of my life. Dagnum has as well. So I thought we'll call it Matchroom, we have a £100 company and I'll just manage Steve Davis and a few snooker boys. I kept the Romford Club as part of the deal. So well, I was you, never going to... You kept one of the clubs. I kept one club, lovely, yeah. lovely. But I was never going to starve, but there was an adrenaline rush that wasn't there anymore. Yeah. And I gave... I took 60% and my... Eddie was three, I gave him 20%. Katie was five, I gave her 20%. And that hasn't changed. Yeah. It's still a family it's business, you know. Although it's not worth 100 quid anymore. No, you know, it's a couple of quid more. <laughs> but the, from then onwards... You, well, you know when you bought, you know when you sold, yeah. that feeling from an East End boy selling for a million pounds, 1.2. When did you buy this big country house? Well, that's the same. See, when I realised that this retirement doesn't work for people like me, I thought... I've got this complacency in my because I'm untouchable at 34. 
And I thought, that's not good. I need to be at risk. So I thought, first thing to do, let's spend all the money. Because then you put yourself on, yeah, under pressure. Again, yeah. no, and I'm yeah. not going to spend it stupid. I'm not mm. going to waste it on drugs or gambling or anything like that. So I bought Maskell's, which is my head office. This, I bought this from the Ford Motor Company. They wanted 260 grand for it. I gave them 245. And it's a good investment, obviously. It's my family home for 20 years. Now it's where we're speaking yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. It's the head office of Matron. How would you explain to the listeners out there what this building is? Bedroom-wise? Well, it's, it's nearly 300 years old. It sits on a hill where I can see London. I'm not there, but I can see it. It's surrounded its own grounds. It's magnificent, to be honest with you. But more importantly, it was a great family home. My kids grew up here. I was very happy here. I said, I think it's a lucky house, if that makes sense. So eventually, jumping a few years, which we can go back on, I had to move because my wife breeds racehorses and it's the love of her life. So she's put up with me for 53 years. God knows What's how. What's your wife's name? Susan. Susan, yeah. So whatever she wants, she I owe her. Yeah, yeah, she yeah, can cool. So I moved to get more land and to have a bigger stud farm operation for her. Uh, and she wanted me to sell this house because it had so many memories. She didn't want other people in it that she knew. And I wouldn't do it. I said, this is a lucky house. This is going to be our headquarters. And it's the best decision I made. Yeah. But elsewhere, I went into London. I bought number three, Grosvenor Street, on the corner of Old Bond Street. I wish I had it now. It's yes. worth a fortune. What did you pay on that? You I remember? paid 620 grand. In the, in the 80s? Yeah. And then I bought 500 acres in Scotland and put up a million fir trees on it. As a tax, it was a tax yeah, saving yeah, yeah. scheme as well, yeah. but it was a massive asset. Offers it the Muller Kintyre, so I could sing Beatles songs <laughs> to Paul and McCartney, and I, yeah, and that was it. The money was gone, yeah. but I had a, you know, I had the snooker club was making good money, and I had the snooker boys who I was managing, and I said, let's just have an adventure. Yeah. Let's go and spread this game all over the world and have some fun. Mm-hmm. Matchroom was formed to have fun. Mm-hmm. It wasn't ever formed to make money. That that comes all. People, again, people that chase money never make money. If you do a good job, you make money. So there's no need to go, you know, don't... If if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, it's exactly opposite to being in the right place at the right time. You do your nuts, you know. So I never worried about making money. I thought, I'm good enough, money will come. What sort of personality were you in your 30s once you you got a million pounds? Yeah. No, I was always aggressive as a young man. I mean, I had... I've had therapy since I'm all right now. I mean, I'm a softie. <laughs> Mid seventies. You could have you know. a tear up. Put it that way. In my youth, yeah, probably too much. Yeah, I was. I was a reasonable size yeah. lump, you know, and I, I had a few chips on my shoulder as well, you know. So, like, for example, I played football at school. Mm. I was okay, but I never heard the whistle, the final whistle against any public school, because <laughs> someone would say. Jolly good shot, old boy. I used to just lamp it. it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not proud of it. But it was in a way of expression of the chips. And we all got chips on our shoulder. We don't cure it until we identify it. And funny enough, you know, I had an old pal of mine who's, who's long gone now, Freddie King, who's an ex-boxer. Yeah. He was my partner in another business, which was we ran all the East End mm. fruit machines, jukeboxes, pool tables, big business. Mm. So you were taking all the cash from them? Yeah, 2,000 machines out on site. 
And Freddie was the one that said, you know, look at you, you know, you're smoking, you're getting fat, come down to the gym, just get fit. And he ended up being more than getting fit. I loved it. Yeah. He also taught me a lot. Where boxing does do it, it teaches you control. Because I wasn't very good. I used to get bashed up by most people. Yeah. And it actually got that, a little bit of that chip off mm. my shoulder. I still got a little, you know, there's still a fraction. You always remember where you come from, you know, and it does affect you. But no, it was, once Matchroom started, of course, it, I got the buzz for it in terms of events. And I was years ahead of my time because there weren't people out there doing that. When did you first meet Chris Eubank? Where were you? I was, uh, I was in my office and Len Ganley, the old snooker referee, famous snooker referee of years ago, phoned me up and said, there's a boxer up here in Sheffield. We're doing the World Championships. He said, there's a boxer up here who wants to meet you. And I said, oh, he said, his name's Chris Eubank. So obviously I follow this boxing, I follow the results. I was doing a lot of shows and uh, I'd seen this kid. He was about eight and nil. Not, I didn't think he was much special, but he had one fight. I think it was against Anthony Logan. I thought it was quite a tough fight, but he came through with flying colours. I knew he had a good chin, unorthodox style, but effective. So I went up to Sheffield. It was just one of those great days. You know, I'm sitting in the corner of the Grosvenor House Hotel and this geezer just swans over, like walking on air with the strut. You know, he didn't, he was potless. He never had anything, but he looked a million dollars. Yeah. You know, he always yeah. did. And I remember his first words to me were, uh, good morning, Mr. Hearn. My name is Christopher Livingston Eubank. I am an athlete and I know my worth. I thought, do you know what, mate? I love you. Good fair play, I absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because I've been, always been a big fan of characters yeah. in sport. Sometimes characters don't have ability, but when they have both, yeah. they're a really a, a big asset to have. And Eubank, he just, I mean, he was an artist in the ring, but he was also an artist outside the ring, and he was a partner rather than... He wasn't an employee. I think I worked for him much more than he worked mm. for me. But, of course, we built this brand of Eubank. A lot of it was rehearsed. A lot of it came naturally to Chris. Mm. But we developed a fighter, and we matched him properly, and we gave him the right opportunities. You say you gave him the right opportunities. What sort of deal did it look like? You as the promoter and him well, as the Well, initially, fighter. of course, it was a, a promoter-fighter deal. Yeah. So. yeah. We agreed a deal in Sheffield. His next three fights was £2,000, £2,500, £3,000. But I would give him £300 a week wages. And he said to me, and if I ever get beat, you don't have to pay me my wages. And I said, no, if you get beat twice, I won't pay (laughs) your wages. Sometimes you can get unlucky. So we actually became... I'm saying strange now because, of course, he's he's such an eccentric man. But I think we're still friends, if you like. I mean, I was best man at his wedding, so you know I valued associations like that. And he he certainly helped bring him back Matchroom mm. to where we wanted to be, and gave us the opportunity to kick on from there. So he was the first fighter that really controlled his own career. Mm. I mean, other fighters have since Nazim Hamid, Ricky Hatton, Lennox Lewis—they've all adopted the Eubank philosophy, but he started it. Mm. So we, in some ways, you know, we were partners. You know, I, I would be on twenty five percent, but it depended how, how big he got. But because he was so easy to promote, he got very big. Yeah. So it was a profitable relationship for both of us. You said you were on twenty five percent. How does that? How does that deal work? Well, once once you go past the promoter relationship, in other words, when you give them a set purse, 
So early days, you give them a set person. They want the guarantee. Most important is to keep them active. In any sport, activity is paramount because there's no point in having a, a million-pound person if you don't work for 10 years. You know? So he went up progressively depending on how much his fights were. Then we got to a certain stage when we did the Sky deal. We moved away from ITV on Sky. And from that stage, he owned the show. So I would take 25% of whatever it made. So anything, so sponsorship, everything, the whole lot. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. And so I was incentivized yeah. to make as much money as possible because yeah. a quarter of it was mine. Yeah. And he was incentivized because he had the best promoter in the world working exclusively for him and pushing his career. So it was the type of relationship, for example, even today that we've got with Anthony Joshua, you know, where we don't take the risk that we used to take. You know, when you pay someone a million quid, you might lose a million quid. When you let them own the show, they feel part of the process. They see every contract. They see every receipt. They're involved. So they're not thinking anyone's ripping them off because everything's there to be audited. And we're happy to take a fairly small percentage nowadays. Once they get to that level, I mean, Anthony Joshua is a great example. We don't get 25% of Anthony Joshua, but we don't want it. What we want is Anthony Joshua to be with us for the rest of his career, which we've now got. But to do that, you've got to earn their respect and you've got to be straight with them. You've got to be fair with them. And don't try and be clever. Don't try and nickel the money on day one because you don't see any of the money on day two. That's a stupid philosophy that a lot of promoters have employed over the years. What were the big fights you put Eubank in with? Was it Eubank Ben? Eubank Ben in 1990 was yep. the best fight I've ever seen yep. to this day. Were but you involved in the second fight? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I was 21 world title fights from Eubank. Wow. And then he got beat by Steve Collins and, he, and the relationship's never the same. Yeah. You know, because they look at you and say, well, maybe it's your fault, not mine, and, and vice versa. So, But we parted as friends and he went off. He joined Frank Warren, he had three fights, I think, got beat three times. Why, did, time. why was there not a third fight with Eubank Ben? Well, because unfortunately, <laughs> when we did Eubank Ben 2, I took a little bit of a chance on it because I really wanted to do the fight. But now it wasn't 100 grand and 200 grand. This was much more money. Mm. So I signed Ben and gave him a million quid. And I signed Eubank for the fight and gave him 900 guarantee. But it was in those days quite a risk because I didn't have a TV contract on that fight. I I hadn't sold a ticket. And Don King phoned me up and said, hey, Barry, I'm going to be your partner. I went, are you? That was news to me. (laughs) Where did that come from? He said, no. He said, you know, this is a great fight. He said, I'll give you $2 million for the overseas TV, but I want half the show. I thought, well, that's, that's a no-brainer. Mm. I'm out of trouble. Mm. I'm making money. I get 50 on top. Yeah, 50 yeah on top. lovely. So, long story, but along the way, uh, Don was very friendly with Frank Warren, and Frank was having one of his struggling times financially. So we, we gave him 5% each as well because he had a relationship with ITV that was beneficial to us. Hey, give him 5% of my money. Yeah. I don't care. We, needless to say, we did all the work, those two did yeah. nothing, but uh, that's okay. That's okay, because we're good at doing it. Yeah. So Don wanted not just half the show, but he wanted both Ben and Eubank. On his books? After the show. After the show, okay. But this was a, you know, this was a big money fight, and of course it transpired that ITV gave us a million quid for the fight. 
We went on sale. We took it to Old Trafford. We sold 55,000 tickets at Old Trafford. The show made a lot of money. And Can you remember roughly how much it made? Yeah, about three million quid. Okay, no. Not bad for a night's work. But it's not really a nice word. Yeah. It's a lifetime. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then, of course, Don was, you know, Don is Don. He's a controller. He's, he's a hard man. He wants 101 cents out of every dollar. But he's not very good with contracts, you know. Okay. So I wrote the contract. And I don't know why, but just out of fun, I said, if you bank or Ben, win or lose, there were you, Don. And I got the fighters in the room and explained the deal. It was a good deal for them going forward. And they all said, thanks, Barry. Look, we've got to take this. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Um, but what I left out was the draw in the contract. You never know. And he didn't clock it? No. No. You never know, do you? <laughs> anyway, of course, the fight was a draw. Yeah. So Don was going on after the fight about how he controls British boxing, how he's got Ben, how he's got you. Ben. And I said, Don, you got fuck all, mate. Read the contract. And he was very upset, to put it mildly. But that's life. And then I sat down with the fighters and said, look, you know, to my mind, you're a free agent. So go where you want. Nigel Ben thought he won the fight and he was very annoyed with me at the time. Yeah. I mean, we're friends now. But he was very annoyed. So he went with Don King anyway. Eubank said, I'm staying with you. Yeah. And that loyalty was rewarded subsequently with some big fights. You know, I mean... Collins obviously was a big fight, but we went all over the place. We went to South Africa, we went to Portugal. And what was what was Eubank like to deal with? That difficult, day? very difficult, very eccentric. Yeah. But actually, he would go away. He was a thinker, you know. He'd go away and think, and he'd come back, and, and generally got it right. So well, I can't remember we ever had a dispute until we parted at the end, and that was quite amicable as well, because what, clearly what the party was, was over. Uh, oh, you've got to try and remember. So 1999, no, probably around 96, 97, something like yeah. that. And, you know, he, he got beat fair and square by Collins mm. and he shouldn't have been. He, I think the Michael Watson fight was the moment yeah. when everything went a bit tits up, you know. Eubank was never the same fighter after the Michael Watson yeah. injury. And I don't think to this day he's ever forgetting it. I mean... We're all very friendly with Michael and we, we help him where we can. But that was a big psychological. Mm. So from that day, Eubank never really went on the front foot in an aggressive manner. Mm. I'm not saying he didn't want to hurt people. I just think he thought, I don't want to get hurt myself. So he was never the same. So in the Collins fight, which he lost, he dropped Collins and then never really went for the finish. At that and time, though, were you thinking boxing's the way forward? Were you liking stepping into the boxing world after being yeah. in the snooker and... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I like my personality suits the boxing yeah. world. You know, is it, there are strange people in the world, and it's governed by respect, I think, mostly outside mm. the ring. And yeah, it's exciting. It, I mean, snooker was great, and we were still involved in the snooker. And of course, in the background, we were always growing the next one, yeah. which perhaps people don't see at the time, you know, but whether it's nine ball pool or fishing or basketball or netball. Or, Temping, bowling. I mean, you try everything. Yeah. Uh, you have to be selective at some stage. But so that was going on. That's your investment in the future, which may cost you some money, but you're making money, so it doesn't matter. But boxing, I was very comfortable in the boxing world. Uh, I love the relationship with fighters. I love, anyway, the relationship with people that you can help them to change their lives. 
And I love the fact that I can build a profitable business in the process as well. So it ticks out all the boxes. No, it's a, it's a strange, complicated business and it wouldn't suit everybody. It suited me and subsequently, of course, it suited Eddie. Did you ever have any dealings with Ambrose Mendy? Of course, yeah, loads. He, well, he was looking after Nigel Men. Yeah. He copped up on the contract as well. When we fought Nigel, when we fought Nigel Ben in the first one, we weren't the mandatory challenger. Okay. And he never asked for options. You never, ever take a non-mandatory fight without insisting on options in case yeah. something goes wrong. They got complacent. Bob Aaron was the, was the governor. Yeah. Ambrose was the, the, the wheeler dealer, as he is always. And they fucked up. Mm. And I couldn't resist it on the night of the fight in 1990 because they gave me a load of aggravation, which we had to, which we all got dealt with. But A load of ag before? Oh, yeah. Give me a couple of examples. Well, they gave us a shitty dressing room. They gave Eubank dirty towels. I mean, Eubank was fastidious yeah. about his cleanliness. On the way into the thing, they, they stopped our entry music, simply the best. Anything to unsettle us, yeah. you know. And uh, that's okay, because Eubank, I remember I was frothing at the mouth. And I had to be restrained. It was very, very embarrassing. And Eubank said to me, looked at me and went, Bather, calm yourself down. He said, he said, they've given me a terrible dressing room, they've given me shitty towels, and now they've broken my music. Would you just let me go in there and bash up this geezer? Yeah. And I went, okay, Chris. And he went in and boxed his ears off. And it was a great, great fight. Both of them were great fighters anyway. Um, but he was a one-off character that had to be involved in every part. So when we did the new Sky deal, I took Eubank with me. Yeah. And, you know, we was, earning, we was earning decent money. I remember Mackenzie, who was the, the head of Sky Sport, he said, I want you. Not messing about, he said, I want you. And he said, I'm going to give you, what is it? Five million pounds for a year. And I, what? <laughs> I'm saying, and, and Eubank looked at him and he went, that is a very upsetting offer. Kelvin McKenzie went, five million, upsetting. What, I'll make it six, but, and we ended up with about eight, I think. Yeah. But having him there was an asset to me yeah, as well. Yeah. And he also put his mind at rest yeah. that he was involved and wasn't getting ripped off. Yeah. Which is why he stayed with me. You know, so it was a good relationship. What about your relationship with Frank Warren? How's that been over the years? Well, always. We've always, <laughs> socially, I think we've always got on. He's a very sociable animal. He's, he's good company. I don't trust him in business. So, and, I, and by the way, he might not trust me. Yeah. Maybe we're cut from the same cloth, I don't know. Um, he's what? North London, I'm East London, but he's, he's a good operator, but it, it sounds terrible to say this. He's not, in my view, he should have capitalised more on the ability he has. Yeah. So his business side wasn't very clever in some ways. I'm sure we all make mistakes. He, he made some colossal mistakes. Mm. But what I'm saying, for a man who's been around as long as he has, he should be, he should be bigger and better. Mm. But, you know... Did you enjoy that competition? Did you see him as competition? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And today, I mean, do you still see oh, him? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, we're, we're not really in competition now. We're a global operation. I mean, we've grown. So someone once said to describe the difference between them would be like the shop on the corner criticising Sainsbury's. You know, we grow. We've, we've all grown. Yeah. Frank sort of stayed in boxing and we diversified outside because that's what we wanted to do and obviously he wanted to stay in boxing. Mm. I think Eddie's never met him, but he talks to his son George and gets on very well with him. 
And why not? Are they the same sort of age? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I would never, I would never block any relationship. And I don't dislike Frank Warren. In fact, exactly the opposite. I really wish him the best of luck. He's one of the great survivors of all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But because of his business track record, it won't be getting. If I was on uh, Dragon's Den, I would have to say, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> would you ever sit in a room and do a podcast with Frank? No. No. No, I don't want to. Look, it's nothing personal. It's just that I have a limited amount of time I'll spend with people I want to spend my time with. And I'm equally sure he may be the same. Yeah. It's an interesting one to do. But if, if Frank and Ever and I got together, that wouldn't be on a podcast. Mm. That'd be on a movie set. Yeah, <laughs> quality. Tell me about the deal. How did you get Anthony Joshua on board? I didn't really edit it, not mm. me. Anthony won the gold medal, obviously, in 2016. 2016, 2012, 2012, 2012. Yeah. and uh, I was desperate for him, as everybody else yeah. was, because yeah, yeah, yeah. good-looking guy, charismatic gold medal, end of story. It's just a question of how much. And Anthony, I didn't realise at the time, smart, very smart boy. And Eddie said to me, no, we're not, I'm not putting it. I said, go and get, go. whatever you've got to do, go and get that kid. He said, no, I'm not putting pressure on you. I went, well, you're losing, you know, everyone's... He went, no, I don't think so. He said, he's a smart kid. So he went to see Anthony. He said, look, just go everywhere. When you've been everywhere and you've learned the business a little bit, come back and see me. Mm. The best movie yeah. ever made. Yeah. Because Anthony saw our business. More importantly, he saw our family. He saw how we run our lives. I think that gave him a little bit of comfort. No boxer really trusts a promoter. Yeah. Until you've got a relationship that's bigger than just contracts. So Anthony went all over the place, all over America, sat down with every promoter out there, really. Learned, listened, took notes, came back to it, said, I want to join you. And that was it. And I always remember that, I mean, Eddie did the whole deal, nothing to do with me. But right at the end, I sat in the chair you're sitting in, and Anthony Joshua was there, quite naive. And we used to have little talks every now and again about business and life and, and he looked at me one day and he said what do you really want out of me no fighters ever asked me that before I went are you listening to this and he went yeah I said I want one percent of your adrenaline quality. so Eddie will sort the money out I don't care yeah. I've got enough money yeah. but what you give me is what I can't buy yeah. walking in with you one day mm -hmm. at Madison Square Gardens Walking in with you when you unify the times, watching you become the first billionaire boxer, that'll do me. That's an adrenaline rush I can't buy. Mm. And it's, that's the truth. That's mm. what I get. And uh, people don't understand it because yeah. people always associate you with their thoughts. Yeah. You know, I want to make, you must be making a fortune. You know, I talk to all these kids in the East End sometimes. Oh, well, how, big is, how big's your house? How much you cost? <laughs> so, no, 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 listen. When you get to a certain stage, I know it sounds ridiculous, it don't mean, yeah. it don't mean yeah. a bean. Yeah. What it means is, are you doing with the one most precious commodity you'll ever have, time? Yeah. Are you doing the best you can do? Mm. Are you being the best you can be? And, you know, in my case, I tick that box, mm. which is probably why I'm still grafting my nuts off at nearly <laughs> 75. <laughs> What's the score with someone like Anthony comes on board? He's chosen match room. Do you have to pay him a fee to 
being just stable. How does how do the finances work with someone like this? People, people that want to pay you up front are generally ripping you off second week they got you. You know, when, I always try to say to fighters, there's much better deal. Are you good? If you're not good, the door's over there. I think you're good. Do you think you're good? Because if you're good, you can earn, you know. So the clever thing, if you're dealing with, if you want to be clever, that's what we always talk about is fur coat, no knickers people, yeah. you know. Which so, yeah, but yeah. you get a fighter comes in. Yeah. Where do they come from? Same here I come from, worse. Yeah. What do you know about this skin? They've got no money. Mum and dad's got no money. No one's got any money. Comes from, an, and people, you've got to be working class to become a professional boxer because you're just not going to take the pain yeah. unless you've got, they're all to do. You throw. Let me, let me just slightly alter this trajectory. Don King owed Muhammad Ali a couple of million dollars once. And he didn't have the money. And Ali came to see him, apparently, demanded his money. Forcibly, if necessary. And Don King said, I haven't got it. You'll have to sue me. Working class guys, sue me? You know, I might kill you. Well, I'm not going to sue you. <laughs> Don said, the only thing I can suggest, and he took a briefcase up and he owned it up and there was $200,000 there, not $2 million, $200,000 cash. He said, you sign this waiver document foregoing your rights to the $2 million, I'll give you that. And Ali took the $200,000. So fast forward to today, fighters are getting better advised and they're much more intelligent than they used to be. But in the early days, a kid would come and see you if say he's worth 10 grand, 15, 20, 25, 30, 50, 100, you know, next eight fights. Yeah. And you sign, you say, well, I'll give you this contract, um, but I'm going to give you 100 grand now. But that 10 grand is two, oh, okay. that 15 yeah. is three, and so on. Yeah. And the kid goes, 100 grand. The best fighter I ever had was a bloke called Lopez from Mexico. You'd never heard of him. He was the best fighter I've ever had. I paid him $100,000 once when he fought Felix Trinidad and I never saw him again. He saw $100,000 and thought, that's it, I've made it. Yeah. I've made it. So upfront payments are the worst thing usually mm -hmm. for a fighter to take. What we do is we structure a different payment and we show. And also on that journey is you get to a certain level where the fighter owns the show. Now, very few fighters get to that level because it has to be the multi-million pound level. Yeah. But nevertheless, a fighter's career is more built around how many times will I fight? Because if you say you're getting 10 grand for your first fight, 15 grand for your second fight, you better make sure there's not a year in between or you're going skin. Yeah. What we would say is we're going to box you six times a year. When they, when they start, you can box them. Obviously, you've got to match them mm. sensibly, but you're giving them a career and you're involved in that career. Mm. So, I mean, again, talking slightly uh, a tangent, why did Hatton and why did Naz leave Frank Warren mm. when his contract ran out? Because they wanted to get real money and they wanted to control their own destiny. So what looks like a good deal in the short term, Not the long term. it's a terrible yeah. deal in the long term. How did pay-per-view change your life? 
Well, he gave me a lot more money. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what year did pay per view come on the scene? Oh, Do you roughly remember? I mean, you're talking 2000. Oh, I'm going to say 2010, something like that. Okay. I mean, for us, it really started us. But I mean, again, it's down to Eddie with Kelbrook, um, George Groves against Carl Froch. Yeah. Those type of fights. There's always been pay per view in the States, and we always follow the states eventually mm. as we did with espn wall-to-wall sports yeah. we had sky and we had bt we had whatever uh, and pay-per-view was a part of their broadcast system and it worked and the early pay-per-view initially made a huge amount of money because it was so novel eventually the numbers came down to but you still get the the odd bonanza yeah. you know i mean so when you get to a certain level, it's very difficult to find out the real value of what you've got. Mm. So a terrestrial TV station would have a limit of what they would pay for give a free-to-air give me, fight. Give me an example. Well, if you take Ben Eubank yeah. 2, right? So I got we got a million pounds, which was a lot of money. From my TV to go, there's yeah. a mill up front. Okay. But they knew they could get that back from advertising revenues or whatever. And you, and you can work the sums out. And you, there's a certain amount of speculation. Now, if that fight have been on pay-per-view mm. at, I'm going to say, when did we start it? I think we started at 14.99, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Call it a tenner Call after it a tenner that. for back then, yeah. So I get a drink at a tenner. That does a million views. Yeah. That's 10 million quid, I've got one. Yeah. So that's the gulf you're dealing with. And that's why the terrestrial station can't compete with yeah. pay stations because it's a numbers game. No one now, if they're the fighters that said to me, all right, guarantee me 10 million. I wouldn't have done the show. Too much risk. Yeah. So the way around it is to say to the fire, you own the show. Mm. And I take a percentage, so we're all driving that percentage as much as we are, but you may have it off. So Froch Groves, for example, I was talking to George Groves just the day before yesterday. Well, they get 90,000 Wembley, wouldn't they? Yeah. yeah. But if that had been 90,000 and a traditional... Uh, TV broadcast yeah, deal yeah. with BBC or ITV. That show might have made two million, okay. three million profit because okay. the cost. Yeah. Um, I think it made thirteen or fourteen. Right. Okay. Because of pay per view. Pay per view. What sort of numbers were pay per view? Do you remember? That one was that did about eight hundred thousand, which was massive. And how nerve-wracking is it for you, knowing that you're going... Oh, we, we don't know. We don't know until the actual fight starts. The, the 90%, 95% of pay-per-view signed up in the last 12 hours. Yeah. So you're yeah. going there on the Saturday and you think, this is why if you've guaranteed purses, you can get your trousers taken down yeah. badly. Yeah, yeah. But if you do it sensible, you're okay. Mm. But during the evening, we spend more time saying to the Sky guy, how we doing? Oh, how we doing? <laughs> and, he's, and he's going, it's trending at. They used trendy, to say, yeah, it's okay. trending at. And usually they were conservative figures, but when you get it right, it's a right buzz. Because you yeah. go to the fighters and you say, I mean, they're not silly. I mean, this change, this is life-changing yeah. money. Joshua, I mean, he's been up to about 1.3 million people. Yeah. How do you divvy that up then? How would you divvy it up? Depends on, depends so like on AJ, for example, you're right, okay, we're going to do a million views on an AJ fight at Klitschko, at 20 quid a pop, yeah. and yeah. you're paying him as well, and then you're dealing with all the sponsors and broadcasting rights. How could you break that down for well, me? Well, you just... I mean, you basically just go out and get as much money from everyone as you can because you're representing your clients. So your fiduciary duty for us is all about Anthony Joshua. Yeah. 
Part of that is what you're going to pay the opponent. The opponent depends on the level of opponent. Mm. If someone comes over from America who, you know, he's a good fighter, but he hasn't really had the exposure and he's a, an opponent, we mm. call him, you know, he could be on half a million dollars, he could okay. be on 700,000, AJ gets the rest. But if you're dealing with uh, Tyson Fury, yeah. for example, you sit down at the table and it's, you know, the arm wrestling goes yeah, on, yeah, yeah. In, in Tyson Fury's case, sometimes for years. Yeah. And it's who's the bigger draw, who's not the bigger draw, who's got the biggest ego, and you go right down to whose picture's on the left-hand side of the poster, who walks in the ring first, who's, yeah, it can get very ego-driven. Yeah. But I try and get above all that and just say, let's concentrate on the money. So, you know, if you have a mandatory challenger under some rules, is 75-25 to the champion. Yeah. In other rules, it's 60-40. Occasionally, it's even 80-20. But it's very much a negotiation on, and again, it's about competition. So Anthony Joshua's got another fight, we think, before hopefully a big fight in December. This, this could all change yeah. in the next hour. <laughs> That's boxing. That's boxing, yeah. But we will look at a range of opponents, and part of the decision-making process is how much does each one of these guys get? Because Anthony Joshua, he's not just a boxer, he's a businessman. Yeah. And he's got to look after himself and maximise his earnings okay. throughout a short career. So it's very much case by case. So we're looking at going, I could pay him 700 Gs, I could pay him 300 Gs or even 500 grand. Who do we fancy? Well, we, well that's when you bring in your broadcast partners yeah. and you have to involve them and your sponsors, mainly your broadcast partners who are paying the big bucks. And say, how do you, you know, and it's quite a, an advanced industry now yeah. because the broadcasters will say, look, we're prepared to pay that if it's Tyson Fury. And we're prepared to pay that if it's uh, Alexander Usyk, yeah. uh, Dylan White, we're prepared to pay that. Okay. And then this geezer, there's these geezers that you've suggested that we've never heard of, we're yeah. prepared to pay that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a scale like yeah. that because they work it back on their own algorithms. How many subscribers are we going to sell? How many pay? They are the speculators. Yeah. And fortunately, because there's a lot of competition in that market for TV rights, mm. that you know you can drive the price. Mm. But what you really want is for everybody involved to make money because then you kick on to the Don't next one. What about the decision-making when you're looking at going to Cardiff or going to Wembley? Is yeah. Wembley more expensive, Cardiff more expensive? Yeah, it's, fair. it's just a logistical exercise. Doesn't, that doesn't affect anything. What's your cost? What's your expected income? What's your ticket price? Can I get more money at Wembley? I can get a Cardiff. If I go to Croke Park, have I got extra expenses on security? I mean, mm. you, just, you factor in all these things and then... You, the fighter comes into the conversation, you know, you've done all this work, he just looks at the bottom line. Let's go that one. Yeah, okay. Which one do you prefer at the two, Wembley or Cardiff? Wembley, London. of course, because it's London, but I don't care. I mean, I will go wherever. I mean, we go to Saudi. Yeah. Well, it's not the same atmosphere, it's not the same buzz, it's not the same fun. Yeah. I pay a lot more money. Decision made. Yeah. So, so for example, on that Saudi thing, the Saudis have come and said, we want boxing over here now. We're going to pay you copious amounts to come here. Like you said, bang, done. So you look at any business, you know, okay, what's my choices? Yeah. And now, what's the reason for my choices? In life, some people might be painters, you know, they might be religious. But they, do, they don't do things like we do. They, they do things because they're born to do it and they've got a love for yeah. it beyond money. Yeah. We don't. And, we, and the quicker we understand that, we take away our, a lot of the conjecture. Yeah. 
say we're here to maximise. We'd rather do people with nice people. We'd rather do business with people we like. Mm. But there's a price mm. for doing business with anybody in any way. What sort of multiples are they paying out there in Saudi compared to what you'd be paying in, in England? Mind your own business. <laughs> a lot more. A lot more. Rough, roughly. We're talking five, ten times more? No, I just said to you the first time. <laughs> Well, you know, all this boxing, there seems to be lots of boxing fans out there, which we all know. There's lots of boxing, everyone on social media talking about who's who. How do we know who's telling the truth? Like negotiations going on, say, like with AJ and Tyson Fury. I think, I think generally, no one ever really knows. It's very easy to give a try. I think what I would do is believe us. And I, and I say that. What else would I say? But we're a bit above all that, the rest of it. And and actually, one of the great benefits of having a lot of money is you can afford to tell the truth. Now, obviously, sometimes we'll have an agenda. We'll try and be building a situation which is perhaps above the heads of the average fan. Mm. Because the average fan just says, well, why, haven't I, why, why can't I watch Tyson Fury yeah, against yeah, yeah. AJ? Yeah. So it's a bit more complicated than that. Mm. But then their next question is, well, I can't, I can't afford five grand a ticket. And then the next question is, well, I can't travel out to Saudi and say, look, it's awfully difficult for me to say this is in a nice way, but you're not so relevant mm. in the bigger picture. I mean, my job is to maximise my clients' earnings. Mm. And I'd like to be a really good guy for you. And I'll do my best in all my sports. I mean, we try ever so hard. Mm. Things like darts, we keep the ticket prices yeah. reasonably down because we sell out and we don't want to lose the support of those people. But there does come a certain level where... I'm awfully sorry, but you're not part of the equation. Mm. How do you feel about the sort of way Anthony Joshua is going at the moment? He's had massive fight against Klitschko and he's had all these yeah, different yeah, fights. He's done ever so well. But done unbelievably well. You know the old saying with, um, is it Holmes, it's saying about the silk tracks, yeah, uh, yeah, silk yeah, pajamas yeah. in the morning. Do you think that's played a factor in, in being a no. hundred million quid no. through the no. bite or not? He, he is a consummate professional yeah. and a real businessman. Now, I would. You know, it hurts getting hit in the face. Yeah. For what he's earned, I agree with you. I'll yeah. be saying, silk pajamas, yeah, who needs this? Yeah. I'm going. Yeah. I remember going to Rome once, seeing Marvin Hagler, bless him, trying to get him to come out of retirement to fight Eubank. And the conversation went, Barry, I, I, I've still got some money. I haven't got fortunes. He said, I've got, I don't know, seven, eight, nine million dollars in the bank. So it's very hard to get up at yeah. four o'clock in the morning, do your road work, yeah. and you've got that money in the bank. Multiply that by millions and you've got Anthony Joshua's situation. But there's something in Anthony Joshua he really likes fighting, number one. Secondly, he's a great studier of the art and he realises he's not good enough. He's still got the hunger to learn. And thirdly, he likes the money. Put those together and you've got a fighter, you know, who is in another leg of his journey. Inevitably, eventually, it all comes to an end. But what, what, again, what you don't want to do, and I had the same thing in 1982, you don't want to look back in your life and say, I stopped being who I am that year. And Anthony likes to fight. So I don't know whether he'll fight July, August, December, or not fight again. Mm. I believe that he believes that he can get back to being the unified champion yeah. of the world. And loads of people disagree with that. And all I say is, boys, let's watch the journey and enjoy it. Because it won't be here forever. Who do you think would win the fight, AJ Tyson Fury? 
I think at the moment you'd, you'd, you'd make Tyson Fury a big favourite. AJ has concussive power. I don't think I've ever seen a heavyweight since Ernie Schaefer punch as big, as hard as AJ. But, of course, you've got to throw punches to make them hurt. And there'll be the critics saying he's not throwing enough punches. I'm probably with them. But his technique is improving and he's winning competitive fights comfortably. But perhaps not as most exciting as he was when yeah. he was gung-ho. Why is, why is that? Because we all want the gung-ho. Yeah, especially the last fight, we were waiting yeah. for him to... You want the gung-ho because you're not a professional boxer. Yeah. yeah. You go gung-ho, like the last fight with Franklin. If AJ got beat, that's him over. Yeah. So you want to go gung-ho. Yeah. And the mind is a funny thing. You know, you, the, the brain remembers things that you don't think they remember. He walked onto one against Andy Ruiz when he went in for the kill. Oh, something in the brain goes, da, 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 <laughs> steady, steady. It's a bit like Eubank and Watson. Eubank said, no, that, that fight didn't affect me. But it did. Because mm. his brain said, don't you go too close. Don't, don't, don't. Throw one page and get out. Don't throw combinations. Mm. All these things going through your head. Over a period of time, they will evaporate, which is why I believe he needs one or two more fights mm. before. But commercially, he, that may not make sense. Mm. But he believes he can do it. And I'm watching him. What I saw against Franklin was a really good performance against a live opponent. But it wasn't sensational in terms of excitement. No. But put yourself in the boxer's shoes. Do you want to go, do you want to be a national hero and go gung-ho, shit or bust, and run the risk of getting beat? Or do you want to prolong and give yourself a chance to learn more by doing a textbook shutout? Yeah. And that was what the second fight against Ruiz was like that, and the fight against Franklin. So you've had a 30-year relationship with Sky Sports. How hard was that for you to leave with the boxing and go across to the zone? Well, first, to put it into context, I mean, if I say I've been lucky in my life and I would include, you know, discovering snooker, meeting Steve Davis, meeting Chris Eubank, I think the arrival of Sky is really what made Matram the company it is. So we go back a long way. I've had a lot of great friends there. I've had a lot of fabulous events that have given us a lot of pleasure. And they've paid me very well throughout my tenure with Sky. But like everything else, you know, there does come a time when there are quantum shifts in a marketplace that only a fool would ignore. So Sky's boxing contract, I think there's lots of lessons to learn out of this, by the way, but Sky's contract came to, towards an end and DAZN uh, approached us to say, we want to make a presence in the UK. And we had a relationship with them because Eddie did a billion-dollar deal with them in America. And so we knew them well enough. Um, but obviously our first love is Sky. Although the company's not the same as it was when I first started, when it was a bit cavalier and everything was so exciting, you know, because it was new, new ground. Yeah. They're an established, rock-solid, hugely profitable business now. And they have systems. They're what we call a proper company. But... They also suffer from arrogance and complacency. So despite the fact that we was earning them a huge amount of money on pay-per-view shows, and despite the fact that we had a long relationship, they weren't really pushing hard. They got, they got a bit complacent. 
You know, it's like forgetting your wife's anniversary or, you know, not buying her a yeah. bunch of flowers every now and again. You yeah. have to tell them you love them, don't you? <coughs> they didn't tell us they loved us. So normally within a year, certainly at least, or before, people would sit down and say, your contract's running out in 18 months and or let's do a new deal. Yeah. You, don't, you don't run out no. to the line unless you think you're beyond approach. Yeah. And I think there was a little bit of that, oh, don't, you know, Sky, Barry, Matchroom, always we go, oh, don't worry about them. They're not going anywhere. Where would they leave us? Mm. And then, of course, someone come in with an absolutely colossal offer and you still want to tell them the truth. And they look, you know, Contact runs out in six months. You haven't done anything about it. Well, yeah, the, you know, and, and the tone of the voice was, yeah, we're going to give you a bit more, but let's not get carried away, you know, okay. one of those. Okay, yeah. You know, we're Sky. Yeah. We're, we're a bit special, we're Sky. You need us more than we need you, sort of feel. Not quite as bad as that. But they certainly got complacent, and they made a big error, and they changed a lot of personnel, which didn't help either. Um, and I just turned around and said, I have a wife and family. I have dreams of where I'm going to grow my business. I don't want to leave you. But you're not going to get remotely close to this amount of money. I said, if it was just a million, two, more, my friendship, my loyalty would say no. But you've just been blown out of the water, son. And I don't see any way that you're going to compete. And to be fair to the powers that be said, well, we can't compete with that. So, well, then that's it. Let's part as friends. We still do the darts. We still do the pool. We still do the fishing with Sky. And we have a great relationship. And that's been hugely, obviously, darts has been hugely successful for Sky. That contract comes out in about two and a half years' time. And I hope very much that we, we'll be talking to Sky before that to see that they will give us, strange word to use, they will give us the respect yeah. of pain the commercial rate for us and and we will have to wait and see has it tainted your relationship a little bit even though you've moved from the a little bit i mean obviously there's a little bit of you know them and us yeah. i mean they're now a competitor and we're now a competitor i mean we're much bigger in boxing than they are but they they they, they like to be you know they, they're sky they, they like to be the number one player but they're not um who knows what the future is Competition is, you know, I hate competition. I'd rather just be just me, you know, yeah, like darts, you know. I, mean, I don't want competition. I like, yeah. But at the same time, it does keep you on your toes mm. and it does make us go that extra mile. And, you know, there is, a, I think, yeah, there's a little bit of sadness amongst some people at Sky that we left. Our friends at Sky understand the reality of the situation and that's more important to me. But going forward, they're, they're a competitor and that's how it should be. How's it going forward? Because the Zona like have lost £5 billion driving this. Does that matter to you at all? Well, no. I mean, that's an investment they made. If yeah. you compare them to Amazon, that's a fraction of what Amazon lost for the first 10 years. Mm. It's a new world. Yeah. And it's dominated by people with serious amounts of money. And Dazone have got serious amounts of money. And they're... Easy for me to say, they're turning the corner and they look. There was a time a couple of years ago where I'm thinking, mm, have I made the right yeah. move? You know, yeah. Now I'm absolutely convinced I made the right move. I see the change in trends globally. Yeah. A lot of us tend to look at the UK as being the be-all and end-all, but it's a tiny speck yeah. of the global audience mm-hmm. and does own embrace that. 
And yeah, they make mistakes. But they're turning out to be good partners. And we are paying fighters yeah. the appropriate amount of money because we have the funds that do that. Yeah. We are the biggest global boxing promoters in the world by country mile. And our plan on boxing is actually to develop more of a UFC flavour in terms of global domination. So we'll, you know, we'll be doing so many shows in the Middle East, so many shows in Australia, so many shows in the Nordic, so many shows in America, so many shows in Mexico, and so on. So it's a bit, in a way, it's a little bit like darts. What we're trying to build is value for money for the punter, value for the money for the broadcaster, value of money for us. So we want people to come and see a matrim show. Yeah. Like when you buy a ticket for the darts, you don't actually go and say, I want to see a player. Yeah. You're buying a ticket for the darts. It's the that brand. Yeah. It's the experience yeah. of that yeah. night. And most people, I mean, a lot of people, everyone copies what we do. Of course, they're trying to be the best. But it's improving the customer experience is a fundamental part of selling tickets and making your event atmospheric and people have a smile on their face when they leave saying, wow, what a night. When's the next one? That's all I want. So with the zone, they were like, it's reported that they gave you 90 million quid over a five-year deal. Does that allow you, I don't know if that's true or not. Miles Does that, out. Miles out. Miles Does that allow you to go, right, I need to go and get Canelo on the books. Does that allow you to say, well, I've got 14 fights. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, how how does it work? We've always had a machine gun, but yeah. we need someone to supply the bullets. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a waste of space. Yeah. And when you've got the backing of DAZN in America and globally and in the UK, small part, basically, uh, yeah, you've you got, you got the weapon and you've got the gun. So you can go to fighters like Canelo and, you know, He's a very interesting man because he's made a shed load yeah. of money. He just loves fighting. He loves fighting. And him and Eddie are quite close friends, but it's still business. You know, he still doesn't give you anything for nothing. Mm. He's quite, you know, business savvy. But of course, to have Canelo, to have Katie Taylor, to have Anthony Joshua gives you an enormous amount of leverage in that world, not just with the public and broadcasters, but with other fighters. Yeah. So we've got a kid called Pacheco at the moment is coming through in the Mexican ranks. We think he's going to be the next. He's only a youngster yet. Yeah. Plenty of time. Yeah. But the reason why we have credibility with those fighters is because, you know, you're a young kid. I'll tell you what we do, you son. How about making your debut on Anthony Joshua card? Oh, oh no, I'm, over I'm all over that. Yeah. Well, my mates can come to. Yeah. You know, or if you're a Mexican, you know, we're going to do we, we do six shows or something in Mexico, maybe yeah. more. How would you like to be on a, an undercard for, for Canelo? I mean, you can't buy that. Mm. That's where money, you know, of course they want the money later on, but the most important thing is handling their careers properly and not taking risk for the short term. Yeah. You know, to have a plan, like you'd have a plan if you, you know, if you invented a factory that can manufacture that cup, You've got to have a plan. How do I sell it? What's my market? Mm. How much is it going to cost me? Mm. What's my margin? How do I market it? Same in the boxer. It's exactly the same. I used to say to fighters, don't take this the wrong way. To me, you're a lump of coal. Yeah. I've got a polish you. That might be a diamond inside. Yeah. Might just be coal. Well, there's a level. Mm. You know, you're going to, you know, to some fighters, to win the area title is a magnificent achievement. Mm. Other fighters want to be world champion and unified, you know. But it all comes down to ability in the end, as it should. But along the way, we can take a lot of the pressures off fighters and give them the opportunity. I mean, again, I always say to young fighters, you know, there's a red button on my desk. Trust me when I tell you. 
you don't want me to push that red button. Yeah. That red button is let's find out button. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't want to find out until I've given the fighter every chance to be the best he can be. And then if he really wants to go to that extra level, you press the red button. Yeah. You and I have been promoters for years in the sports and events business. Have you got a bit of advice for me, Baz? Yeah. I should never have given you advice to start with, though. <laughs> Listen, you understand the business. You, 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 I'm not blowing smoke up your arse. You, you've done a good job because you understand the basics. Just keep to the basics. Don't start getting airy-fairy, mm. Dreamsville. And the secret with your brand, which is going, I don't know how many years it's been going now, 12, 14, 16, 16, 16 years. You build a brand every year. Yeah. And that's the great thing. See, in sports terms, history is the same as building a brand, isn't it? So the Live Golf Tour is destroying professional golf, effectively. People don't see it properly, but it will do, because it will lower the value of golf. But the Live Golf could, could pay a trillion dollars prize money, but they'll never get the history of the Open on the Masters. And that's quite humbling, because we realise it's not just about money, but money's a big part of it. So what you've done with your brand is progressively over the years, learn more, Improved your business, improved your product, improved your customer experience, improved the one failure of most businesses. You don't want to be a secret. Yeah. You know, bullshit or whatever, get it out there. Yeah. Because we live in a world of the king has no clothes. Yeah. If you can convince people over and over and over and over yeah. that this is worthy of their attention, mm. they'll be your most loyal customer and they'll stick with you over the years. Again, darts is the best example I can give you. You know, we give people value for money. You know, our ticket prices are way, way too cheap in the commercial world, but we take a decision to keep them that way. But we're all relentless. We're all relentless. That's every day, it, yeah. every day you think of something new yeah. to improve. Yeah. And that's all you ask of people, not just businesses. Mm. And I say to kids all the time when you talk to them, how can I do this, how can I do that? Just be the best you can be, but don't get... Don't cut yourself short by lack of effort. Some people say to me, how do I improve productivity in my business? I say, shall I, I should give you lesson one? Yeah, what's that? What's that? <laughs> Start an hour earlier and finish an hour later. And they go, is that it? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Away you go. And by the way, if you don't improve your productivity, it means you're no good. Yeah, yeah. Just before we finish up here, Baz, give us a quick lowdown on getting your OBE. Well... It was really nice. A few friends, I never really knew much about it. My, a few friends of mine said, you know, oh, you should. And I'm like, inside you say, yeah, I'd love it. Yeah. But outside you go, oh, that don't really matter. Yeah. They're not going to give it to me. I make too much money or I come from the wrong area yeah. or whatever excuse you want to make. But of course, when it, the letter comes through the post, with my first thought is I wish my mum and dad were alive. Because, yeah. you know, I'm proud of being British. I've never avoided my taxes. I paid my dues. Mm. And I've no intention of doing anything else. Mm. But you do like, I don't care who you are. Mm. You've got time yet, Rog. Right. So I've had, I'm the world record holder in Hall of Fames. I challenge anyone to be inducted in more Hall of Fames than I have. I've done four, right? Boxing, pool, snooker and darts. Yeah. Now, if you find me one person who's been inducted in, in properly organised mm. Halls of Fame, I'll buy you lunch. Yeah. Because you're not going to find it. But we all like a slap on the back. We all like being told well done. I get my slap on the back from accounts. Yeah. I look at my companies and I go, wow, what a performance. 
But then I say, where are we next year? Yeah. This is not the end of the journey. Keep tweaking and improving. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Keep tweaking, keep improving, keep grafting. Yeah. And one day you'll get your reward. And the reward is not necessarily monetary. I mean, we started, you know, we started making a lot of money. And we thought, we sat around as a family. We make family decisions still. So we thought we'd form a matrim charitable foundation. We thought we're making a load of money. We don't. Once you've made it, that's yeah, that's yeah. the game over, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. You move on, go make yeah, some more. Yeah. But then sometimes, as you get older, you get a bit more reflective, and you think, I should be doing something with this. And we we've, we've started a small foundation, and it's it's done very well. It's given away quite Fez, a lot of money. Tell and me about Jumbi Island before we finish. Well, no, that's just a little treat for me. You know, <laughs> we're, we're, that, that, you know we're, we're like children. We, as I say to you about honours and things like that, we like to be applauded, but we like to pretend it doesn't matter because you don't want the dis- disappointment of not getting yeah. applauded. Yeah, yeah. The reason why I've been inducted into four Hall of Fames is not because I'm any good, it's because I'm old. Mm. And people feel like, oh, bloody hell, we better <laughs> give him something before he goes. <laughs> Otherwise we feel guilty. We all say, you know, posthumous is not the same award, yeah. is it? Yeah. And then in life, you know, you do, you reach this balance where you say, Please, God, it happens to you, and I'm sure it will, where you look. I think there's three stages in life. Number one, for any entrepreneur, selfish stage. You've got to be a nasty bit of work. You've got to be prepared to be a shit father, horrible husband. You've got to be prepared to work all the hours that God sends. You've got to be prepared to put up any level of aggravation. It's a horrible, horrible time. But if you get through that period, then you can become a much better dad, much better husband. And if you get through that period, then you look around and perhaps you can put something back into the community you came from or the country you came from. And I think I'm in stage three now and that will be a bigger stage for me as I get older, approaching that day when I get summoned to the cricket field in the skies and the government put their hand out for 40% inheritance tax. <laughs> And I say, fuck you, I've given it all to charity. <laughs> Quality. Baz, we'll end it on here, mate. Absolutely love being in your company. What you've built up over the years, over that 40, 50 years is unbelievable. No, you're on the same journey, mate. I shall hopefully live long enough to be interviewing you in, in times of it. When I get more time on my hands, but a pleasure to everybody that listens to your podcast. It is a terrific listen and it comes from experience and that's the most important. Take out the bullshit out of your life. Don't be a fur coat, no, no knickers merchant. <laughs> Plan, sustainability, and a legacy that you won't go far wrong. You're a good man, Bez. Cheers, good gentlemen. Good be man. Good. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Cheers.